0: Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. An outstanding sculptor associated with the intellectual and cultural awakening known as the Harlem Renaissance, Augusta Savage overcame poverty, racism, and sexual discrimination in pursuit of her goals. Creating new visions of black identity in her work, she was also an activist campaigning for equal rights for African-Americans in the arts. The traveling exhibition, Augusta Savage, Renaissance Woman, and its accompanying catalog, is the first to reassess Savage's contributions to art and cultural history in light of 21st century attention to the concept of the artist activist. The groundbreaking volume features illustrations of more than 40 works by Savage, her students, and her contemporaries archival letters, rarely-seen photographs, and an extensive bibliography and essays by Kirsten Pye Buick, Bridget R. Cooks, and Howard Dodson. On June 23, 2019, exhibition organizer Jeffreen M. Hayes discusses the life, work, and lasting legacy of Savage as an artist and a community builder. This program was proposed and made possible by Daryl Atwell.
1: Okay. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Terrence, uh, Terrence Washington. I work here in the Department of Academic Programs. Um, and I'll just say, to head off any questions, we cannot hold class outside today. Um, so thanks for joining us here in the dark. <laughs> Welcome. Um, you're here for a lecture by Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. Um, and I should say, we, should all, we all need to thank uh, Dr. Daryl Atwell, who is an amazing friend to my department and to the Gallery. Um, The series of lectures that he has sponsored here has opened up the doors for both new audiences and our regulars to get a look at the neglected corners of art history and current day practices. Thank you, Daryl, always, for your support. Jeffrey Hayes merges her administrative, curatorial, and academic practices into her cultural leadership of supporting artists and community development. As an advocate for racial inclusion, equity, and access, Jafreen develops adaptable approaches for community participation, particularly those in underrepresented groups. Just her recent projects include the exhibitions Augusta Savage, Renaissance Woman, Africobra, Messages to the People, and most recently, Africobra Nation Time, which which is an official collateral event for the 2019 Venice Biennale. Jeffreyen is the executive director of Three Walls, a Chicago-based nonprofit that fosters contemporary art practices that respond to lived experiences, encouraging connections beyond art. I got to see Jeffreyen's Augusta Savage exhibition at the New York Historical Society. It's still there for a bit. So you know when you're done here, uh, head up there. Um, and it, pro- it provides clear evidence of Savage's skill and of her understanding of art's capability to manifest dreams in physical space. Just a week later, in Venice, I passed uh, Wadsworth and Jay Jarrell, who were two of the members of AfroCobra, and the Nation Time show um, was just opening, and they, they, were, they were beaming. They were so excited, and I realized that, that their dreams uh, were being manifested in physical space. And I thought of what all our grandmothers say about giving people their flowers when they're still alive. So thank you, Jeffreen, for doing that. In these situations, when an underappreciated artist is finally given their laurels by some museum or collector or another, a situation which is thankfully happening with increasing frequency, we often say that their work is being brought to light. And a question that I think we all should be asking is, who's light? Because the people doing this work, like Jeffreen and Daryl and many others among the new school of art history, would say, if you know, you know. So I'm so glad that they're here today to share the work of Augusta Savage with us. There will be questions when this is over. Uh, Jeffrey will take some here at the podium. And you can also ask some in the book signing line. And I encourage you to ask. And I encourage you to look for more information on Savage and ask Jeffreen who you should should be looking at. Um, For now, though, Join me in welcoming Jeffreine Hayes.
2: Good afternoon. So thank you so much for spending some of your Sunday here, uh, especially if you tried to navigate the barbecue festival, as I did, um, in heels. And so I'm a little bit shorter right now. Um, and you know I am really happy to be back. Um, Those of you who know me know that uh, I've spent some time in DC. I first moved to DC in 2001 to work at GSA's Art and Architecture program, and then left there to go to grad school at Howard um, and got a job opportunity that I did not necessarily want to take because it meant leaving. DC, a place that's been really formative for me, not just personally, but also as an academic. Um, so it's always wonderful to come back and to share and also to give back to a community that has given and continues to give so much to me. I want to thank the National Gallery uh, for inviting me back and Daryl Atwell for sponsoring this. Um, Daryl really is someone doing the work um, that I really try to advocate for in Chicago, as well as the other communities that I'm in. So he is someone who is a really great example of using his position to elevate the arts. So thank you, Daryl. So before I get into my talk today, I want to acknowledge two individuals who've been part of my journey in the arts, and more specifically, connected to Augusta Savage. Dr. Floyd Coleman, who is pictured here, an artist, art historian, and administrator, who uh, transitioned to the other side at the end of 2018, was my champion while I was a grad student at Howard. He encouraged me to pursue a doctorate, saying, I must get a PhD. Now, I was not really looking to get a PhD. I really just wanted to get in, get out, and start curating. But Dr. Coleman was very adamant that there was something I had to offer, and also saying that there are a lot of artists who need scholarship. No one had ever said such a thing to me. And Floyd, as he allowed me to call him after graduating, is the person who submitted my seminar paper to present here at the National Gallery during the Mid-Atlantic Symposium for Art History Students. That was my first time at the gallery, and I presented about Romare Bearden. And from that day forward, I never kind of looked back in terms of being a scholar and focusing on African-American artists. The other person I want to acknowledge is my grandmother, Belle, who has also transitioned to the other side. She passed away last month. And it was from her that I realized how and why I essentially dedicate my life to supporting black artists, particularly those who are overlooked and undervalued by a field dominated by the market, and the market is being driven, quite frankly, by whiteness. My grandmother, a Dominican, not to be confused with Dominican, was a bold and quiet woman who advocated for her village of Marigot, fighting for resources for this very small community. I realize that I'm very much within this tradition, this lineage, and it's what has led me to Augusta Savage. So today's talk is dedicated to both Floyd Coleman and my grandmother, Belle. Augusta Christine Savage was born to Cornelia Murphy and Edward Fells on February 29, 1892, in Green Cove Springs, Florida. In 1921, Savage moved from Jacksonville, Florida, to New York City to further her artistic skills and was admitted to Cooper Union. Like many black artists of her time, Savage traveled to Paris to study her craft, spending 1929 to 1931 in the City of Light. When she returned, she opened her studio up to the public in Harlem, offering free art education, taking in young and old. During this time, she mentored a number of master artists, many of them that we know, such as Gwendolyn Knights, Jacob Lawrence, Norman Lewis, Morgan and Marvin Smith, and William Artist, to name a few. Because of the success of her studio and dedication to art education, the Federal Art Project invited Savage to open a community art center, the Harlem Community Art Center, which would serve as a model for art centers opening across the nation during the Depression. Shortly after the opening of the center, Savage participated in the 1939 New York World's Fair and created her masterpiece, The Harp. After the critical success of her work in the fair, she opened up two galleries that did not last long. She went back to teaching and moved to Socrates, New York, where she lived until the 1960s, which after she returned to New York and lived with her her daughter and died of cancer in 1962. So I'm just giving you a very brief biography of Augusta Savage. Um, And we'll continue kind of giving you uh, behind the, well, not necessarily behind the scenes, but a, a look at the exhibition Augusta Savage, Renaissance Woman that was at the Cummer Museum in Jacksonville, Florida. Augusta Savage, Renaissance Woman, the exhibition and accompanying book are the fruits of a labor of love. I'd been thinking about and living with Savage since my days at Howard for about 12 years at the time of receiving the invitation to curate a show on her for the Cummer Museum of Arts and Garden. The former director, Hope McMath, approached me to organize the show in 2014. Hope shared that she had a love of Savage, and it was past time for a new exhibition and new scholarship on this incredible woman who had ties to Jacksonville. And so Savage's ties to Jacksonville were that when she left West Palm Beach as a young woman, she'd heard about black wealth, wealthy folks in Jacksonville and thought that if she moved there, she could make some money doing commissioned portrait busts. This is also where she met James Weldon Johnson, who became a lifelong friend. And James Weldon Johnson being the co-composer of Lift Every Voice and Sing: The Black National Anthem. The Cummer's founding collection included Savage's Diving Boy, which was once at the home of the museum's founder, Nina Cummer. With hope's enthusiasm, trust, and the Cummer's connection to Savage, I set out to organize a show that would center Savage more so than her students. At the same time, the exhibition needed to put the black experience and black womanhood into a larger context as these relate to the, the art making practice, whether artists want to admit it or not. The project began in the summer of 2015, which was also the summer that Black Lives Matter grew to a national movement. The organization was founded by three black women, Patrice. Khan Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi in 2013 to call attention to the violence against the black community. More specifically, the activist group formed in response to the murder of Trayvon Martin and the acquittal of vigilante George Zimmerman. The words from the founders succinctly articulate the reason for Black Lives Matter, and I quote, it is an ideological and political intervention in a world where black lives are systematically and intentionally tar- targeted for demise. It is an affirmation of black folks' humanity, our contributions to the society, and our resilience in the face of deadly op- oppression." End quote. As the, res- as the movement gained visibility with the murders of Eric Gardner, Mike Brown, Sandra Bland. Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, and many more, the media did not center the black women, but the men of the movement. This is pretty typical in a patriarchal society, even as women, time and time again, create and lead. It's important to understand that this period in 2015 is connected to Savage's work during the Harlem Renaissance, the 1920s, 1930s. And how art historically she also has been overlooked in favor of elevating black male artists of the period, such as Archibald Motley, William H. Johnson, James Vanderzee, Rich- Richmond Barthé, and the list goes on. To be clear, these artists are significant to the period and helped to shape it. Arguably, though, they would not be without Augusta Savage laying the groundwork, just like Black Lives Matter would not be without Alicia Garza, Patrice Colors, and Opal Tometi. In an interesting way, Black Lives Matter aligns with the leadership and creativity that Savage pioneered in black visibility and representation. So what you're looking at is the exhibition at the Comer And this is the entrance. And so I have slides of the different installation of of the show. So Augusta Savage, Renaissance Woman, is an act of recovery, expanding representation, and documenting black brilliance and excellence. This begins in the exhibition, which is organized by five sections. Race, Women, and Mobility is one section. In Her Voice is the second section. Harlem art and voicing is a third. Organizing through education is a fourth. And lastly, redefining visibility. What follows are brief overviews of each section. In each section, there are works of art, archival documents, and photographs. And it was important that with a show like this, archival documents and photographs to be included to help provide the context for not just Augusta Savage, but the period in which she was working. It also helps the visitors enter a space where there's a deeper connection to the world in which artists, who are also human beings, and this is something we tend to forget because we lay a lot on artists to help us see through, quite frankly, a lot of mess they live and work in. It's also important that when the visitors leave, they have a deeper understanding of the impact that Savage had on a community. And so this sculpture right here is Diving Boy, which is the, one of the works that was part of the founding collection for the Comer. Race, Women, and Mobility. This is the first section in the exhibition and sets the tone for Augusta Savage's navigation of the art worlds. It's a section that highlights the challenges of being black in the US from the inclusion of Harriet Tubman painted by Ernest Crishlow. And so this painting over here is a portrait of Harriet Tubman. And it's actually a gouache that was used for a biography on Harriet Tubman. To voting in elections by Jacob Lawrence. And so this right here on the left is Jacob Lawrence's *Migrants Going to Vote* Two depictions of Black women, and so right here is Savage's portrait of Gwendolyn Knight, and it's actually a recast. Savage's portrait of Gwendolyn Knight, a student friend and wife of Jacob Lawrence, is included in this as well, and. It was important to have these kind of begin, again, the exhibition to set the tone for the visitor experience, but also in telling the story. As I mentioned, archival documents are part of the exhibition. And the show also opens up with a selection of letters written by W.E.B. Du Bois, Savage, and the Fountain Blue Committee. These documents are important evidence of how white supremacy works in the art world and the world at large. So these are the letters that I'm referencing. And on the left is a letter that Du Bois wrote. And on the right is a letter from a member of the selection committee. They, in the incident that spurred the public reconciliation, are the core of my essay in the book that accompanies the exhibition, where I argue that we should consider Savage a race woman. And I'm just going to read an excerpt from, the, from my essay. In the spring of 1923, Savage received a summer scholarship to the prestigious Fountain Blue School of the Arts in France. The award provided travel and study for 100 women artists. Although the French government sponsored the program, an American selection committee comprised entirely of white men, the American Committee of Eminent American Architects, Painters, and Sculptors identified the awardees. Unbeknownst to them, they had selected a black woman. Once they learned that Savage was black, her scholarship was rescinded on the basis that Southern white women should not be expected to share travel accommodations with a black woman. By stripping Savage of a scholarship that she had earned through merit, the committee perpetuated the notion of the inferiority of black artists and practiced the ideology of protecting white womanhood at all costs. Savage did not take the rejection lightly. Her act of protest laid the foundation for her role as a race woman and a public intellectual. The unfortunate incident was reported in various newspapers, such as the New York Amsterdam News, Negro World, New York Herald Tribune, New York World, and the New York Times. Some of the headlines reflecting the racism blacks endured during the Jim Crow era included, Negress de- denied entry to French art school, famous artists draw color line against students, and the color line in arts. All of these illuminate what often goes unspoken, even in contemporary times. Racism and sexism are pervasive in the arts, a space believed to be equal and democratic for all. With the publicity around, uh, excuse me, with the publicity surrounding Savage's exclusion from the Fountain Blue program, many people took up her cause. W.E.B. Du Bois, a respected scholar and an architect of the New Negro, spoke on her behalf, challenging the committee's decision by writing letters to each of the the members, a critical act of advocacy demonstrating the seriousness and the reality of racism. One of his letters, addressed to J. Monroe Hewlett and dated on May 3, 1929, reads, I have sent a number of letters concerning the case of a colored woman, Ms. Savage, who has been an applicant for admission to the Fountain Blue School of Arts. I understand that after her application had been accepted that a committee of which you are a member refused her admission because of her Negro descent. I know how stories of this sort are sometimes distorted in the newspapers. And before publishing facts or making any comment upon this matter, I'm writing to you personally to ask if you would make a statement of the facts and your attitude towards Miss Savage." (laughs) Despite this early support, it wasn't until years later in 1930. Now, we're talking this happened in 1923. Seven years later, Du Bois published a public statement in the Crisis magazine, the magazine he founded to document black life and culture from a critical perspective. In his commentary, he shares with readers that the editors of the magazine at last heard from Whitney Warren, the director of Beaux Arts Institute of Design and a member of the committee, who claimed he was not aware of the evidence that uh, Du Bois provided of of discrimination and stated that the French government had nothing to do with the incident. Unfortunately for Warren, Du Bois had evidence of his knowledge of the injustice. Quoting Du Bois, we have, uh, excuse me, we have suspicion, he says at the close of his commentary entitled The Architectural Lie, and we are following the matter up and the American sponsors for the Fountain Blue School, being willing to draw the color line and not having the moral courage to assume responsibility for themselves for it." End quote. Though Du Bois worked behind the scenes on Savage's behalf, in 1923, she took pen to paper to speak for herself, submitting a letter to the editor of the New York World. In it, Savage took on her role as a race woman. In response to the discrimination, she wrote, I hear so many complaints to the effect that Negroes do not take advantage of the educational opportunities offered to them. For how am I to compete with other American artists if I'm not given the same opportunity?" End quote. She continues to say, I don't have much care for myself because I will get along all right here, but other and better colored students my wish to apply sometime. This is the first year the school is open, and I'm the first colored girl to apply. I don't like to see them establish a precedent. An example of her activism for the black community, Savage's statement was a significant act of resistance, reflecting what Brittany Cooper defines as the race woman's role, to give shape and meaning to the black body in a social and political climate. Further, it challenged the expected place of black women socially in America, to be quiet and subscribe to the male-created notion of womanhood in the domestic sphere. Pauline Hopkins explained this idea in 1902, saying, we know that it is not popular for a woman to speak or write in plain terms against political brutalities, that women should confine her efforts to women's work in the home and church. Indeed, Savage's pursuit of an education and a career in the arts and the visual arts and spaces traditionally reserved for men challenge traditional notions of a woman's place. And one of the things that I find really interesting about Savage is not only that um, she was an educator and an artist, but the fact that she chose sculpture as her medium. One of probably the most challenging uh, media to work in primarily because of the expense. Um, And we don't have a lot of women sculptors, period. But we certainly didn't have a lot of women sculptors during that time. So she's been, that's one of the reasons why I've been kind of consumed with who she was and the fact that she went in this direction. So from here, the exhibition moves to, in her voice, And this is a quote here by Savage. I was a leap year baby, and it seems to me that I have been leaping ever since. So this section highlights Savage's sculptures, presenting a diversity of her media, from terracotta to plaster to bronze to even a gouache painting. And this is where I would like to really acknowledge the Schomburg Center. They have the most work by Augusta Savage. They also have her papers. And they were an incredible partner on this exhibition, not only with lending works, um, and the majority of the works in the show are from the Schomburg, but also the photographs that are also included. This section also presents paintings and prints by Gwendolyn Knight. one thing, if you have not seen the show and you plan to see the show, or if you have seen the show, um, one of the things that was also important to me in curating it, given that there are not a lot of work available by Augusta Savage, and uh, we know that she mentored and taught the master artists that I mentioned earlier, was not to kind of have too much work by her students as a way to overshadow her. Um, And so in the decision to include those artists, I really wanted to center black women. And so many of the works by those artists represent black women. Um, and we don't have a lot, again, representation in art history, in public collections of black women, whether it's a bodies, whether it's um, experiences. And so that is an underlying theme within the show. So in this section, this is the second section. And so you see here, this is a terracotta piece. It's called Portrait of a Baby. This is Boy on a Stump, which is actually a recast, and it is in the uh, David C. Driscoll collection. This is a work that's in the Schomburg, and then photographs. And what you don't see, unfortunately, covering back here, there is bas-relief plaster work that Savage did early on of of a dancer. Also in this section, wanted to not just highlight the artworks, but also the different kind of work that Augusta Savage was doing. And so this is a photograph from the opening of her art gallery, which was called the Salon for Contemporary Negro Art. It opened in June 1939. It was not open very long because, as is the case with a gallery, you have to sell work to make money and stay open. So it was only open for a few months. And so this is actually the opening night. And you see back here, that's Diving Boy in the back. In Harlem Art and Voicing, the section opens with Georgia Douglas Johnson's poem. Published in the October 1917 issue of the Crisis Magazine, Douglas Johnson's poem paints a complex picture of the new Negro movement happening across the country at this time. Johnson, widely identified as the first black woman poet of the period, puts a voice to the feelings and realities of navigating life as a black person in the United States. Harlem became a place where art like Johnson's could flourish and helped to build a solid foundation upon which black life and culture could exist, just as they dreamed both during and after slavery. The works, photographs, and documents in this section provide an overview, although a very small one, because we know Harlem had a very riveting life at that time. Overview of Harlem, its artists, and how Augusta Savage's work contributed to the ever-expanding voice and presence of black people. So in this section, not only are there photographs of, so like this section here are really photographs of Savage. There's a photograph of her at the opening of the Harlem Community Art Center. Also a dedication of a portrait bust that she actually made of Du Bois. We have Charles Austin, We have portraits that Morgan and Marvin Smith, who were photographers, they made self-portraits. So those are pastels. And this is a small Augusta Savage called the the pugilus. Organizing through education. So this is a quote also that is somewhat well-known by Augusta Savage, saying, I've created nothing really beautiful, really lasting, but if I can inspire one of these youngsters to develop the talent I know they possess, then my monument will be in their work." And I think this is a really poignant quote by her. I remember actually talking with Dr. Coleman about Augusta Savage when I was in school and was really frustrated that there wasn't a lot of work scholarship on Augusta Savage. And one of the things that he said was, well, she's kind of stopped making work. She stopped making art because she was teaching. And I was, I understood that, but I didn't think that that was, that was reason enough not to think about this artist. And so it's at that time in that conversation with him, this conversation between, and it's something that a lot of artists today still grapple with. Should they focus on education and, and teaching? because it's a viable uh, economic path for them, sustainability? Or should they focus on being an artist full time? Um, And so Augusta Savage kind of wrestling with that question even back then. Um, But the fact that she says here that it's it's actually about the next generation and not necessarily about her work um, or the harp is her monument. Not only was education core to Augusta Savage's art and being, during this period, it was also viewed as an avenue to full humanity. Through her educational facilities, Savage did what many in the black community have done since slavery, passed down knowledge to those who did not have the means. Arguably, her studios, most notably the Works Progress Administration-sponsored Harlem Community Art Center, which was free, became the model for community art centers nationwide. So this is a, a photo of Savage, and Savage is here in the middle, with uh, teachers at the Harlem Community Art Center. And here's a poster on the left from the Harlem Community Art Center. On The image on the right, are, it's an image of students in class. And so it really was a model for the other art centers that were supported by the WPA. And it was, it definitely served as a model for the Southside Community Art Center in Chicago, which a lot of people don't make that connection. And just as a tidbit, Augusta Savage was invited to Chicago to help fundraise for the Southside Community Art Center right after the World's Fair. And she also did an exhibition there for the YMCA. And what was really exciting about learning about this exhibition was, wasn't was just that she was in Chicago and, and had it, but the impact that this woman who was in New York, just working, had on this the next generation through this exhibition. And so there's an article, newspaper article, that kind of chronicles her time in Chicago. One noted that she got into a car accident with a patron. Um, She was fine, but just thinking about the society papers. But the other was that 10,000 school kids went and saw the show over the week that it was there. That's really incredible if you think about art education, museum tours. 10,000 black kids went to see the show. And in addition to that, those who could afford it each paid a penny to help ship the show to the next venue. Now, that is mind blowing. And that is the power of art. And teaching our young, at that age, the importance of art and that being an artist is actually a viable option. So that's just that's the side note. And then here's another image, which is probably one of my favorites, of another class happening. So this is an image of Savage in Chicago. And I believe that it's the Southside Community Art Center. It looks like the same architecture, although on the photograph it doesn't say where, where this is. And what's wonderful about this photograph, and it's, this one is in the exhibition, is that this is a tour with blind visitors. And so, when you think again about museums and their role in tours, and how do you educate those who have different kinds of disabilities? This was probably one of the first kind of uh, touch feel tours. And so, we're talking in the 1930s, and. This sculpture is actually in the show as well. This is an image of actually one of my favorite pairings in the show in this, in this same section. So this is J- a Jacob Lawrence drawing on the back. This is Robert Blackburn, who was a student as well. This is Selma Burke's Sadness. And then this is Mary McLeod Bethune, which is uh, Augusta Savage's work. Redefining visibility. So neither in the 19th or the 20th century visual culture was kind to the black community. Blacks were depicted as lazy and subservient or in other derogatory ways, including portrayals with dirty or unkempt appearances or overly exaggerated physical features. Popular imagery was created to continue the narrative uh, that blacks were not worthy of being seen as fully human. Savage and the artists of the Negro Renaissance created works of art to challenge this notion and to further argue that blacks had important art and culture. This is an important legacy of Savage's arts and her educational outlets, including the Uptown Laboratory, Savage Studio of Arts and Crafts, the Harlem Community Arts Center, and the Salon of Contemporary Negro Arts. So this is the last section in the show. So we've got two here of Augusta Savage works. This is Reclining Nude, which may be one of the earliest representations of black female nude. This is Laughing Boy. And then over here in the corner on the left is William Artis' Mother's Love. This is also in this section, and this is Augusta Savage, with two works that no longer exist, and they're jazz dancers. So this is an image of Augusta Savage gifting a model of the harp to the commissioner of the 1939 New York World's Fair. This year is the 80th anniversary of the fair, where Augusta Savage debuted her monumental sculpture, An Ode to Black Music, Culture, and Youth. It was a statement of honoring a music born out of the American experience. The sculpture was also a homage to her friend, James Walden Johnson, who co wrote with his brother, Roseman Johnson, the Black national anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. And this work is also, it also goes by Lift Every Voice and Sing. Some will say that this is Savage's most important work due to the scale, it was 16 feet. Um, It was the most photographed work during the World's Fair. Uh, It was presented on the world stage, and that there are many replications of it that reside in public and private collections. Many bemoan, especially with the show. Um, I can't tell you how many emails I have gotten about wanting to talk about recreating the harp since the show's opened. Um, I have my thoughts on that. Won't talk about it tonight, today though. Um, Many bemoan that it no longer exists, and it wasn't meant to, though, um, as all the work during the fair was destroyed. It is painful, though, to know that it met its demise, considering Augusta Savage, who she was, the impact, and the scale, and just how important it continues to be in visual culture. Particularly when you know that one of the reasons why we don't have more of Savage's works is because she could not afford to cast them in bronze. And in the end, she did not have the patronage that benefited many artists of the time. So Savage is a lesson for all of us involved in the arts. Augusta Savage was more than an artist, more than an educator, and more than an organizer. While she was certainly all of these things, she was also a black woman navigating intersecting worlds that did not fully see her value. The Fountain Blue incident set it off and energized what was already inside her. She did not simply make art, teach, and advocate for black artists. She was a strategist, a politician, leveraging her skills and interests to create a lasting legacy. She was truly a Renaissance woman who understood the impact of her work and what it meant to be a model for the next generation. Let's learn from her example and uplift those doing the work. So thank you for being part of sharing the time and space with me and being part of the work. And that's what I have for you. Thank you.
0: This has been a National
1: Gallery of Art podcast.